the book of Jonah, it's a great book, right? It grabs your attention right away. They say when dog bites man, that's not a story. But if man bites dog, that's news. Well, if man eats fish, that's just dinner. But if a fish eats man, now there's a story. Hit the next slide. Um, so case in point, here's a guy that got eaten by a whale. 2021, modern day. Um, he was just eaten for a moment, then the whale spit him back out. But it made the news, right? So case in point, this is, this is a, a story that catches your attention. Now, Jonah is also a great story for kids. It has a simple yet profound message wrapped up in a story that's both fantastic, engaging, and true. It's like a ready-made VeggieTales classic. But now for adults, we may think, well, it's really just a simple story for kids. And the real biblical scholars among us always like to point out that it was a giant fish that swallowed Jonah, not a whale. It's an interesting but not necessarily theologically meaningful point. However, for adults, there is plenty in the account of Jonah. If you're willing to put in the work and peel back some of the layers and see what's underneath. And that's exactly what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. We're going to put in the work on Jonah. Let's just start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we know every word uh, comes from you. And we know that uh, by studying it, we honor you and glorify you. We know that by putting it into practice in our lives, we do the same thing. We know that we're powerless to do this on our own. So we just trust that you and your Holy Spirit would be guiding us this morning as we open your precious word. And as we see what it means about your wonderful son and about your plan for our lives. We pray this would be the goal that we accomplish today by your grace. In your name we pray. Amen. So I'm just going to start by reading Jonah chapter 1. And uh, I have it written on my paper here. I always like to bring bring the Bible up. Um, but the print's really small. It's actually kind of hard to read. So Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying his fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. The sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making this all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. 
for the sea grew even wilder than before. They cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So because this is our first week in Jonah, we're going to start off with a little bit of context, and that's going to include a little bit of history as well. And uh, why do we do this? Well, because while the Bible is a great message of redemption, it is also very much a history book, right? Everything in here happened exactly the way it was described. It happened in a real place, and it happened at an established point in time. Now, between those times and now, things have changed, right? Cultures have changed, nations have risen and fallen, people have migrated. So to understand the events, we need to get a little bit of appreciation for the time and place in which they occurred. So first, the when. Well, we don't know exactly when, but we do know approximately when Jonah lived. In the book of 2 Kings, chapter 14, we read, In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebohamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord. The God of Israel spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath Hefer. So this is the same Jonah who was called by God to go to Nineveh. Now we know Jeroboam II reigned from approximately 790 BC to 740 BC. So we know that Jonah's ministry overlapped that. We don't have the exact dates, much less the exact dates that the events recorded in the book of Jonah took place. But we do know that these are the main events that were considered worth writing down, and we're going to discuss that later. But at this time, Assyria, with Nineveh as their capital, was in a temporary period of decline. There's historic evidence that they were fending off invasions from the north and experiencing a famine. Now, Nineveh was still the leading city of its day, and it's one of the most renowned cities of the ancient world. However, the expansion that took place under earlier kings had slowed and stopped, uh, and had even been reversed, as we saw, as Jonah had prophesied, Jeroboam reclaimed Israel's lost territory. The who? Well, previously, the Assyrians had invaded Israel. There's quite a bit of that recorded in the Bible. Too much to go into detail. Um, But at the time of Jonah, as we saw, things were a little quieter, right? The expansion of the Assyrians had stopped. um, But this was just temporary. In a little while, the Assyrians are going to get a new series of kings to renew that expansion. And eventually, the Assyrians are going to finish what they started. They're going to complete the conquest of Israel, deporting its inhabitants. Dan, if you could bring up the next slide. So here you can see the extent of the Assyrian Empire. The dark brown is from a period a little bit before um, the time of Jonah. And then the full extent, the lighter brown, is the time afterwards. And uh, what you can also see is the hand of God in this, right? This huge empire surrounding Judah. Judah was never fully conquered by 
the Assyrians because they were under the protection of the Lord, this little island in the midst of a great empire. So our story takes place somewhere between these two. And during Jonah's time, Israel was doing pretty well, not spiritually, but at least militarily, they were doing well. Jeroboam II had recaptured their lost territory and expanded the borders of Israel to the greatest extent since the time of Solomon. So while things were better, there was still a lot of fresh history in people's minds. Keep in mind, the Assyrians prided themselves on being some pretty bad guys. When they took over a place, they were known for torturing its inhabitants in absolutely brutal ways. It was meant to send a message. You better obey this, obey us, or this is what's going to happen to you. If you fight us, this is what you get. And the memory of the past invasions would be very fresh in the minds of the Israelites, and there would always be a constant fear of renewed invasions. So this is not exactly the place you want to get sent to deliver a message that they might not want to hear. Now, eventually, the empire of the Assyrians fell. Nineveh was conquered by a coalition of the Babylonians, the Medes, and the Persians, and its destruction was so great and so complete that it was buried and essentially forgotten. There's maybe some references to it as the place of burial for Jonah, um, but it was essentially untouched until the year 1846 when archaeologists started to excavate it. So how about the where? Well, we've seen the Assyrian Empire, and Dan, if you could bring up the next slide. Well, see, this is sort of the overall picture. You can see where the uh, little A is. That's where Jonah lived. And he was called to go to where you see the B, Nineveh. It's about 500 miles, kind of the equivalent to going from here to Columbus, Ohio. But we know Jonah didn't go to Nineveh at first. He tried to go to Tarshish. And Tarshish is about 2,500 miles away, probably longer with the path you'd have to take on a boat about the distance from here to Las Vegas. When Jonah ran, he ran to the absolute end of the known world. And if you could bring up the next slide. Of course, as we know, he didn't make it to Tarshish. Somewhere in there, God turned him around, put him in a fish, and had that fish bring him to the shore and spin him up. Now, Nineveh is an inland city. This fish could not have spit him up at the gates of Nineveh. After he was vomited up onto the seashore, he had again to make this 500-mile journey to get to Nineveh to deliver the message. So that's the when, the who, and the where. So hopefully we have some context. Um, I have a little quiz for the people in the audience now. It's not on the history, but what do the temple, Solomon, and Jonah all have in common? I knew you would know the answer. Go ahead, Linda. Yes, the Lord made a point that he was greater than all of them. Jesus is going through a compare and contrast exercise with the Pharisees. And he points out he is better than the best things that they know of. And they are worse than the worst things that they know of. But what does this tell us? That Jonah was a notable prophet. More importantly, his message of redemption was extraordinary. Jesus didn't waste his time comparing himself to the ordinary, but to the extraordinary. So even though Jonah is listed as a, ma a minor prophet, that really only refers to the length of the book, which is pretty short. It's about a page and a half probably in your Bible. It does not in any way mean 
that Jonah was some sort of a lesser prophet. If you could hit the next slide, Dan. So what are some themes of Jonah? Well, first, the Lord provides, and specifically, he provides what we need, not necessarily what we want. Second is the love and compassion the Lord has for the lost and the sinful. The third we'll see is we'll see some very striking parallels to Christ. Often the calling is similar, but the execution in the heart may be very different between Jonah and uh, the Lord. We'll see the theme of resurrection. And as always, it's important. We'll see ourselves in Jonah. So we read the first chapter. Now we're going to go through it verse by verse and see what it, see what it says. So verse one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah was chosen to deliver the word of the Lord. This was the first of the Lord's provision for him. He gave him the word. Jonah didn't go out and find it. It came to him. And so immediately we can start to see ourselves in the account of Jonah. You may be thinking, what do you mean? The word of the Lord hasn't come to me. I say it certainly has. Maybe not in the form of a voice from heaven, but through the Bible and the Holy Spirit who teaches us how to understand it and how to deliver it. So the word of the Lord has come to us. It has come with, to us with power. And the question for us is, what will we do with it? We have a choice similar to Jonah. Verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. So again, we see here the same calling that we have, right? The basic command is go and preach the word because the world is wicked and needs a savior. That's what God told Jonah. And that's what Jesus tells us. We've been given the same command as Jonah. And we have the same opportunity to respond. There's so much we can learn from Jonah, particularly because our calling is similar, but also our nature is similar to Jonah's. But we're left a little wanting by this, by this verse. Yes, it says go and preach to the wicked. But does that really mean a message of salvation such as we have been given? What exactly is Jonah supposed to be saying to them? Maybe this is the message Jonah was looking for. Go and preach against the great wicked city of Nineveh. Yes, Lord, I'd be happy to go and preach against them for their wickedness. I'll give them a little fire and brimstone. Let them know that their destruction is coming. And maybe then I'll camp out and wait for it to happen. But we learn that the message that Jonah was given was not just about their wickedness. It was a message of repentance and grace. And Jonah had a problem with this. We can learn about this in verse 4, that he didn't want Nineveh to be saved. See his response after the Ninevites repent. This is chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow in anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah comes right back at God with a great big, I told you so. God, you aren't supposed to be saving the wicked like this. I tried to save you from this mistake. When you told me to go to Nineveh, I went the other way. God, you are just too loving and compassionate. You don't destroy people the way you ought to. This is how Jonah viewed the situation. Perhaps not realizing his own need for salvation. And like him, 
we ourselves have no righteousness on our own. It is only by the love and compassion of God that when the judgment day comes, we will be able to stand. That is the same loving and compassionate God that here saved the lives of the Ninevites. Now, like I said, the Ninevites, these were some bad guys. In fact, when Jesus needed an example of some bad people to compare the Pharisees to, he used the Ninevites. In Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. When it comes to salvation, is anyone beyond God's reach? The answer is clearly no. The Pharisees would have undoubtedly been stung by the comparison between them and the Ninevites. They would not have wanted to be compared unfavorably to those people. But for us, this is a message of joy. Because if God can take a Ninevite or a church-persecuting Pharisee named Saul and save them, he can do the same for me. And we get a great insight into his character that it is both within his will and his power to save in that manner. So I think we're clear now that Jonah was called to preach a message of salvation and that really what upset him was that the Ninevites might take this message to heart. So what does he do next? Verse three, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Jonah ran away, not from his mission, not from the Ninevites, but from God himself. What was he thinking? As we'll see in later chapters, Jonah was acquainted with the scriptures. He should have known that there was no running from God. He probably knew Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Verse 9, if I settle on the far side of the sea, it was almost as if these words were written just for Jonah. That's what he was trying to do, settle on the far side of the sea to get away from God. Did he really think it was going to be as simple as running away from God? But Jonah didn't just panic and run. His actions were deliberate. He went the opposite direction. He picked the furthest point in the known world to go to. There was probably nothing on the map beyond Tarshish. We can also assume that there probably weren't a ton of boats departing for the end of the earth. He had to go and look for one. Then he took his money and he invested in his flight. A 3,000-mile journey through dangerous waters probably would have been expected to take weeks. And he paid the fare for this trip. He didn't just run. He laid out cash for this operation. We contrast that with Jesus. He was called to go to a world that hated him. The whole universe was at his disposal. Unlimited options to go anywhere else at no cost. Yet he came here and he paid. He paid not to stay away, not to avoid bringing us a message of salvation, but he paid with his own precious life so that he could come and preach us a message of salvation so that we could believe and be saved. This is the message of salvation that we are given to share. 
But when the time comes to share it, do we do so or do we run? Maybe not to the other side of the world, but in more subtle ways. When the conversation gets spiritual, do we change the subject or do we avoid presenting the gospel the way we know we should? Hopefully we don't. And hopefully we don't need the same wake-up call that Jonah needed. Verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. So first, God sent his word because the Ninevites needed it. Now he sends the wind as the second of his provisions because Jonah needs it. Jonah didn't want it. It ruined all of his carefully laid plans, but he needed it. This wind caused a storm that ultimately God used to turn Jonah around. Now, this must have been some storm. It threatened to break the ship apart. It drove fear and terror into the hands of, or the minds of experienced sailors. Jonah had to go fulfill his message, and God was going to do what it took to get his attention and turn him around. Verse 5, all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. Now keep an eye on the sailors here throughout the events that unfold. Right now, they're calling out to pagan gods. Verse 5 continued. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God, that he may take notice of us, so that we will not perish. Now, why does that sound familiar? Well, Jesus was asleep on the boat during a storm, and he was woken up with the same plea. Don't you care that we're going to drown? Matthew 4.35. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drowned? He got up and rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. If you could hit the next slide, Dan. Now, when Jesus was awoken, He silenced the storm. Jonah was powerless to stop the storm. He knew how to stop the storm, but he did not possess the power to stop it. The captain, he didn't understand any of this. He was just trying to do whatever he could to save the ship and himself. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lots fell to Jonah. If you could hit the slide, Dan. The sailors were outmatched by this storm, and they knew it. They decided to throw it into the hands of God. Now, this is not a good situation for Jonah. I'm sure back in the ancient world, many people died because they accidentally drew the short straw or the black rock or whatever was used to cast lots. But in this case, the hand of God was behind the casting of the lot, and it fell to the right person. But God's hand was also in the response. Verse 8, so they said to him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Now, in many scenarios, I have to imagine, Jonah just would have immediately been thrown into the sea. 
but this crew seems pretty sympathetic. They decide that they're going to give Jonah a little bit of interview first. I personally would have been fixed on, tell us how to get out of this situation. But here's Jonah's response. Verse 9. He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah, for all his flaws in this story, takes the right approach here. The question wasn't, what religion are you? The question is, who are you? But the answers to those questions were inseparable for Jonah. His response was, I worship the Lord. That is the identity I am bound up in. First and foremost, it was the Lord. Now, he probably also really got their attention when he mentioned that God is the God of the sea, where they wish they weren't, and the God of dry land, where they probably wish they were. But for us, the question is, how will we answer? Many people want to know how you identify these days, where your alliances lie. Who are you really? When someone says, tell me about yourself, what do I say first? I'm an engineer. I'm a husband, a father. Or would I first say I'm a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ? See the response of the sailors, verse 10. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. Jonah was sent to Nineveh, but we'll see that this message of salvation and redemption wasn't just for the Ninevites, right? It was really for everyone that he encountered, including these sailors. Now we're already seeing a change in these men who a few minutes ago were calling out to their own gods. Now they're beginning to fear the true and living God. And originally they were willing to take Jonah with them, not too worried about the God he was running away from. Now I'm sure they feel differently. Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? All right, Jonah, things are getting worse. Interview's over. We need to get down to business. None of us wants to die here. We think you have the solution to our predicament. And the truth is, Jonah did know the solution to their predicament. And he tells them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. So this actually seems like a pretty decent group of guys, right? They're in fear of their lives here, yet they're hesitant to dispatch Jonah into the sea. Now, they may have also been driven by their fear of the developing respect they have for his God. But when human effort goes up against God, the result is inevitable. And so these sailors decide, we're going to row for land. Well, there was no chance of that. They were going to fail even before their oars hit the water. Because when God determines something, he plots out the path, not humans. And so failing to row to land, they come to this very hard decision. They decide that they have to do what Jonah has told them and throw him into the water. They are, in a sense, replacing the loss of their own lives with the loss of Jonah's life, a substitute for them. Verse 14, they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, 
have done as you pleased. You can already see the men on the boat are changed. Now they're calling out to the true God, not to their own gods. Verse 15. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard into the raging sea, and it grew calm. If you could hit the next slide, Dan. So they finally break down and they toss Jonah overboard as requested. And they're just in absolute fear. They're afraid of the storm and they're afraid of the Lord. But as promised, the sea grew calm. And I would have to bet that they had probably never seen a calmer sea than what they saw after Jonah went into the water. And look at their response. Verse 16. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Notice the response to witnessing the power of God. They are driven to worship, just like the disciples were in Matthew 14, 32. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. These men were incidental converts who started out this chapter by calling out to pagan gods, and now they are worshiping the one true God not because of any specific message that Jonah brought them, but because the message of God was made known to them through his power. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Get the next slide, Dan. Here's the third provision of the Lord, a great fish to save him from drowning and bring him where he needed to be. Now, the inside of a fish is a nasty place to be. If you could hit the next slide, Dan. It would have been pitch black, absolutely no light at all. Just Jonah, all by himself, along with whatever was inside the fish already slowly being digested. It would have been wet and nauseating. We know he had seaweed wrapped around his head. And while many pictures show you a rather roomy inside of the fish's stomach, I suspect he was likely quite cramped. And on top of it all, the stomach acids of the fish were probably starting to digest him like they were the other food. This is perhaps the worst possible place you could imagine being. So why such complexity? Why not just blow the boat back to port or intercept Jonah on the road to Joppa, similar to the way Saul was on the road to Damascus? Well, as with everything, when the Lord is involved, there's a purpose and a plan. Jonah is going to foreshadow Christ. We read in Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees told Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he replied to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. As I mentioned earlier, Jonah had a ministry beyond going to Nineveh. He was an effective prophet, as we read earlier. Events unfolded exactly the way he said they would. So why, hundreds of years before Christ, was the book of Jonah recorded with these specific details? It was because Jonah was going to serve not just as a prophet, but more importantly, as a sign. Jonah's time in the belly of the fish was meant to be a sign of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. Jonah's message brought temporary redemption 
to 120,000 souls. The Lord's death and resurrection would bring permanent redemption to millions upon millions. We are meant to be impressed with the effectiveness of Jonah's ministry, but we must be in awe of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so for now, we leave Jonah in the belly of the fish, but in the upcoming weeks, we will see his symbolic resurrection and the effect that a message of redemption can have. Let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the message. We thank you that uh, if there's any accusation against you as a God, it's that you are too loving, too compassionate, too forgiving, too slow to anger, too abounding in love. Lord, you've given us a wonderful message of redemption to share with this world. Lord, why you chose us, why you allow us to be used by you, we don't fully understand. Lord, we know that we're imperfect messengers, but we pray that we would humble ourselves, that we would obey you, that we would rely on your Holy Spirit, and we would deliver your message. And we pray that we would have the joy of seeing the fruit of redemption. And Lord, we pray that it would be accepted with joy in our hearts. We pray this in your name. Amen.